Hey everyone, we just launched a new show called Request for Startups. In the first season, we've got a rotating lineup of tech founders and investors joining me to share their requests for startups they want to exist in the world, and also share their stories of navigating the idea maze in different sectors so founders don't have to reinvent the wheel anymore. The first episode is out now. We cover better dating apps, references as a service, and we work for productivity. Listen first, then build. Video episodes of the show are on our Substack. You'll find a link in the description. So when we started SafeGraph, I thought that we're just about to hit that kind of curve, that inflection point, and that the the, the buyers for this data were going to grow exponentially. In retrospect, I think I was wrong about that. The buyers have, have really only grown linearly since we started the company. And there's still very few companies and organizations that can have the ability to buy raw data. And and is it because, you know, to use your analogy, like you, let's say you're selling you know world-class butter, there's just not an, enough chefs, not enough yeah, people who know to- that's right. There's not enough chefs. So people still, a lot of people are just happy just buying the croissant. They don't need to go make the croissant. Welcome to Media Empires, where we sit down with the most influential media creators right now to learn exactly how they built their empires. Our aim is to extract the secrets of top-tier podcasters, newsletter authors, and media creators who are breaking the old rules for media success. Whether you're looking to start your own empires or simply curious about the nuts and bolts behind media businesses, you'll find valuable insights and tactics in each episode. Grab your headphones and let's dive in. Oren, thanks for joining the podcast. So excited to be here, Eric. So Aaron, we, we've been friends for almost a decade now, and uh, this is your third podcast appearance uh, or that I've uh, done with you. Um, and I'm curious, you know, when you reflect back on the arc of your career and the businesses that you've chosen to to start and be a part of, what is sort of the thread that that ties them together? What what, what makes kind of an orange shaped uh, orange shaped idea? One is that businesses that can get to like 50% market share are super interesting, even, even when that market's very small. I mean, dominant businesses often have these like declining CACs, and declining CACs are kind of the one consistent mark of all great businesses. And, and what are the characteristics that make declining CACs? Like, how, how do you know when you're likely to, to have one? I mean, it, it, sometimes you don't know um, uh, until you actually see the data. Yeah. Most businesses, most like B2B software businesses don't have declining CACs. Um, even, even when you think of their LTV to CAC, like it's not changing very much over, over time. Uh, and that's because like the businesses are extremely competitive. And so they constantly have to go and, um, you know, get the best salespeople and really try to, you know, go out there and, and get these customers. And that becomes very, very, very difficult to do. If you have a dominant position, you can uh, drastically reduce your sales and marketing costs because they're going to go with you. You're going to be the first call. You, you still might need to be, not be the best solution for everybody, but you're going to get the incoming call. So if you're going to do telephony right now, you're probably just going to call up Twilio. Again, they might not be right for you, so you could end up using somebody else, but they're probably going to be the first one that you look at. And then if you think of a company that has... 70 plus percent market share or something like my last company, Lifeline, we're just going to go to them first before you look at alternatives. So one main feature of businesses that, that have to kind of decline in CAC is just majority of market share? If they have majority market share, then they almost certainly will have declining CACs, right? And if you think of the companies that have most CACs that are declining, that would be like a big social network like Facebook or TikTok or uh, you know, um, LinkedIn or Google or something like that. 
their cost of acquiring like the next customer is always basically less than the last one. We went on Invest Like the Best recently, and you did a deep dive on, on data businesses. I recommend people listen to it. We'll link in the show notes. When did you realize that you had a special interest um, or, or special ability for, for data businesses? I think data businesses are just weird, and they're different. Um, they kind of rhyme with SaaS businesses, but they have a lot of things that are very different about them, and they just aren't necessarily appreciated by by maybe old school public market investors who've been investing in these kind of certain types of data businesses for 40, 50 years. Those they might appreciate, but the new types of businesses that are out there are 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 very hard to understand, and they're often misunderstood. Talk about the the main differences in building them. You know, for someone, let's say, who's who more familiar with building a SaaS company is now you know thinking about a data business. T- talk about some of the main differences. Well, the good thing about data business is also the bad thing in that you often can sell that data to lots of different types of customers. Um, whereas a SaaS business is usually going to be a little bit more vertical, very, very specific to an industry. Data businesses could be that way, but they often can go across vertical. And that's both a good and a bad thing. Uh, the second thing with data business is if it's a pure data business, then you're you're really just an ingredient. You're not actually the solution. And that can be a bad thing because most people who want to buy want to buy a solution, but there are a subset of buyers that really want the ingredient because they want that ingredient to power their own solution. Well, make sure I want to make sure I understand why is it a bad thing that you can resell the the data horizontally? You know, is is it because it makes you scattered, or or why is it a bad thing? Yeah, exactly. You're not necessarily learning if you always are selling to very very specific use case. You're constantly tuning your product to make it better for that one use case, which might make it not good for other use cases. But at least for that one use case, you're really going to dominate in data because it's so broad. You're often not tuning it. And you might sell into real estate, you might sell into medical, you might sell into the public market, you might sell into marketing, and and then you're you're never great for anybody. You're just okay for everybody. So in, in your taxonomy of data businesses, you have you know data businesses about the past. That's that's what you call truth, and data businesses that are about predicting the future. You call religion, and then you have like data businesses. There are four different kinds. One is uh, pro- data about products, data about people. I believe that's what you tried with with Rapleaf. Uh, data with uh, about places. That's what you're building with with Safecraft. Yep. And then one more data about like organizations or companies. Those are the four right. nouns. Yeah. And, and can you give examples of of successful businesses in 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 each? Yeah. So by the way, truth and religion businesses are both can be really good businesses. You have FICO, which is a religion business. I love that company. Its CEO Will Lansing is on our board at Safecraft, uh, and uh, the, the, I think the most important thing is if you're a startup, you should just choose one though. Uh, too many startups are trying to do everything at once and they're trying to, okay, we can do this, that, we can predict the past and we can predict the future. It's, you know, again, a big company, you're a huge company. Yeah, go. You can have multiple product lines. You can do multiple things. You're a small startup. You've raised less than $100 million. Like most startups want you focus and really, really win what you can do first before you move to some of these other things. And if you think about these nouns, right, these people, places, um, organizations and products, uh, they're they're each really interesting, and they're often going to be crossed with one another. They're almost always crossed with uh, time and sometimes with price, and so you get very very interesting things. But usually, your taxonomy is built on one of those things. So if you think of FICO, it's built on a person. It's around a person or experience or something like that. The people noun is the most valuable, um, and it's the biggest noun. 
it also is, has a lot of privacy concerns because you're having data about people and 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 so that's not always something that people want to have on them and stuff like that. The other three nouns, the nice thing about them while the markets are smaller is that the, there's not necessarily privacy around a company or something like that. If you want to say what the stock price is of Starbucks, you know, or um, you know, what is the what is the Starbucks coffee cost in one of their stores versus another store or something like that, or you know, just if you're talking about a place, uh, what is the uh, does what you know how many bathrooms does an average Starbucks have or something like that. Those are uh, easier data to have without hitting the privacy concerns. When you were exploring uh, the idea for SafeGraph, how did you settle on building, uh, you know, a data business about place as opposed to some of the other ideas you could have pursued? Well, first, I mean, I think the bet originally was that pure data businesses would be much more valuable with the rise of data science, machine learning, and AI. Um, and that these new data science buyers would pay a huge premium on data that's true. And in the past, a lot of the data businesses were really data for marketing. And in marketing, if you're like 50% accurate, that's actually really good. Um, and you know and th that works fine. But in a kind of data science, machine learning, AI use case, you really need that data to be in the high 90s uh, percent true if you're going to start. Because if you start timesing like 0.9 against each other a bunch of times, you get to a pretty small number. Uh, pretty quickly. So when we started SafeGraph, I thought that we're just about to hit that kind of curve, that inflection point, and that the 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 buyers for this data were going to grow exponentially. In retrospect, I, I think I was wrong about that. The buyers have, have really only grown linearly since we started the company. And there's still very few companies and organizations that can have the ability to buy raw data. And, and is it because, you know, to use your analogy, like, you, let's say you're selling, you know, world class butter. There's just not en enough chefs, not enough yeah, people who know to. That's right. There's not enough chefs. There's, people still, a lot of people are just happy just buying the croissant. They don't need to go make the croissant. Does that data help? You know, mean that you are likely to, um, you know, try to get into croissant making as well, or is it just, hey, you're going to bide your time and wait until there's enough chefs out there? In our case, we're going to do the latter. Um, but I think a lot of companies, they start out as data companies, they realize it's actually really, really hard. Being a data business is incredibly hard. And they often pivot to becoming an application. And that's where they're, they get their success. Yeah. And and, and where are you guys waiting? Because you, you, you can and because you just want to be the best at it? You think the prize is big enough? And you know, because I'm stubborn, probably, <laughs> probably no good reason. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and so when people build these data businesses, like if you're building a religion business, don't you need to also know the the past as well? So are you kind of doing both or what is the difference? Yeah, if you but you can buy companies who have the past, right? So if you think of uh, FICO, like their core input is like the Experian, Equifax, TransUnion data. They don't create that data themselves. They they take that input of their data and then they build models on top of it. So uh, they have a very strong partnership with those three credit bureaus, but they're not a credit bureau themselves. Makes sense. And so let's say, you know, we're going to build a data business about place or product or organizations or people. What, what are the methods by which you can build, you can like get those inputs in a way that is like, uh, you know, 90% accurate? Well, in, in, in getting getting to high accuracy is really, really hard. First of all, just you have to figure out like wh how you're going to proprietary source this data, where you're going to get the data from. And data is all over the place. You can crawl the web. You can get data from you know public sources. You can call people up and get data. You can create some sort of data co-op where people contribute their data in some sort of way. There's lots of ways of getting data. Um, 
And um, but in all those ways, first of all, getting it is very, very, very hard. So getting the input is hard and then verifying if it's true is incredibly hard. In some cases, it's more difficult than others. So verifying something is true about a person is more difficult than verifying something is true about a place because you can actually go visit the place and actually go look around and stuff and see if it's if it's more likely to be true. So so it depends on the type of noun that you have. And then there's some sort of taxonomy that you need to connect all those things. And so if you think of a, a person, there's different join keys on a person. You could have a, an email address or a phone number or maybe a social security number or some sort of join key to connect people. If you're just going to connect people on first and last name, that's going to be a much more difficult way of connecting people. Same thing with a place. You can connect people with, um, uh, with, with an address or we use something called a place key to connect people. With a company, you know, maybe you use some sort of hierarchy of domain name and ticker symbol or something. Products are much more difficult to do. So if you think of like a Coke uh, and Diet Coke, okay, they're related, and a two-liter bottle of Coke and a can of Coke is related, and but like some sort of hierarchy needs to happen, and there's no commonality. And in some cases, there is, like a book has an ISBN. Um, and, and that makes it really easy. But in most product cases, it's very, very difficult to, to create the right hierarchies. And, and, in, and sometimes they're very, very different because you might serve a burger in your restaurant. I might serve one in my restaurant. Mine costs 50 cents. Yours costs $50. There's some sort of quality difference in that, in that burger. Yeah. And so when we think about, let's say, data businesses for organizations, is, and we think about prominent ones, is, is, is Yelp an example or is that not the right sort of taxonomy for a business like Yelp? Yelp has a data business and they do have a small data business. It's very, very, very small compared to their overall business. And because it's very, very small, they don't really focus that much on the business. They have an amazing business, their core business. And then like a lot of people who have a core business that have data as an exhaust, they're like, oh, we should also have a data business. And in some cases that, that works and they have a nice data business. Um, which is, which I'm sure is very profitable and a good, and a good business, but it'll never be like the most important thing that the CEO and the executives are thinking about all the time. It's, it's like a side kind of nice cash flow thing that helps the rest of their business grow. What are examples of businesses that, that kind of have, you know, a core business and then data as an exhaust, but that data business is actually pretty valuable. There are very few. Interesting. Um, first of all, there are very few data businesses that are very valuable, period. Right. Um, if you think in the last 20 years, just the number of data businesses that were started that are worth more than a billion dollars is is really just a handful. Zoom Info being the, the best example, but there are really very, very, very few examples where are there you know, well over a thousand SaaS companies that were started in the last 20 years that are worth over a billion dollars. So it's much, much easier to start a software company. And even if you're starting something on the side, you know, if you're a big like, you know, electricity uh, utility and you start a SaaS company on the side, it's much more likely that's going to be valuable than if you just go and sell your transmission data or something. Yeah. So, you know, you in terms of businesses around products, you've been an investor and in, you know, and you you investor in G2 and you incubated Siftery. So you've been interested in businesses that give kind of uh, you know, better data about products, but these are not primarily data businesses or how do we square the circle? Like, how do we make sense? Yeah. I mean, in some cases, Siftery was a data business and the premise really was the same as LiveRamp. When we launched LiveRamp in 2010, everyone was saying that there were too many MarTech and ad tech vendors. You know, you had this like insane Loomscape 
and everybody was predicting consolidation. And we took the exact opposite belief. We believed that uh, that there will be more vendors every single year. Now, luckily for the live ramp shareholders, that macro bet turned turn out to be right. And Siftery had the same premise, that the number of vendors was going to continue to grow and that the most interesting thing you could learn about the company is what stack they use. Essentially, that is the DNA of a company. If you tell me the DNA of a company by showing me what products they use, I can basically predict how successful this company is going to be in the future. Right. There's a, a company that uses Google Apps, Zoom, and Slack has a very different DNA than a company that uses Office, Outlook, and Teams. And so you can get a lot of sense for that company from under, from understanding that. And so yeah, the part of the of what they were doing was around the part of the noun was around the products, but but a lot of the noun was actually the company. Interesting. Do, do you think that space is uh, like problems have been solved in that space and it's a saturated space or would you go pursue something else um, in that space again? Well, I, I think the idea of learning what other companies use, what products other companies use and being able to pick products based on who else uses what uh, is actually pretty interesting. And so, um, and also if I could see what products I currently use and then see who, what other products, let's, let's the next product that other people buy when they have the stack that I have, I'm looking to replace my email vendor. What other, what do other people, cause not everything, there are dozens of email vendors, but some work better with the stack than I have. And it's very hard for me to go replace my entire stack. So even if this one email vendor is the best, it might not be the best for me. Um, and, and, you know, just think about it, like if you have a small home in San Francisco with a small, tiny garage, okay, you might not want to buy the F, you know, F-150 truck. It might not fit. And so even if that is the, the coolest car for you and that is the best fit for you, if it doesn't fit in your garage, it's not worth buying. And the same is true with software. Yeah. That, and then, so then the question, if you were, you know, to incubate that business or invest in that business is like, how do they, what is the wedge? Like, how, how do they get that data in the first place? Right. That's correct. Yeah. How do you get that data? Or there could be a, a lot of these companies like applic you know, when we're talking about application companies that are built on top of data, there's a UI wedge. There's other ways of actually um, doing this well. What, what was the wedge you guys tried at Siftery or Siftery tried? Uh, well, we started by crawling everyone's website. So you know what all the, at least, you know, you, you know, the high level stack that people use, right? You know, if they use Greenhouse or Lever, you know, if they use Salesforce often by crawling, you often know like all the other kind of cool, all the front end tools that they use. You can have some sort of understanding their back end stack. You know, if they're hosted on AWS or if they're on Google Cloud, right? So you have a, a lot of different information you can get by crawling. And then you want people to contribute. And of course, you can crawl. A lot of people list who their customers are. So you can crawl the other way and have an understanding there as well. Yeah. And I, I, who are the other companies in this vendor, right? Like, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's still a very, very open space. Like, it's still very hard to buy things today. It's hard to buy anything yeah. today. Um, and certain things, you know, you if you're just a consumer and you want to buy a pair of scissors, maybe you go to Wirecutter and you go, you just buy like the first thing on Wirecutter or something like that. Or you, you there's some Reddit board that you trust and you go there and you just buy that. Uh, and that that can work, especially if it's just a pair of scissors and it costs you $15 or something and it's not, it's not a big deal. But as you start like increasing either the value of that product to you or the increasing the price, 
then I think we're we're in a world where it's very, 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 very difficult to buy. And it becomes even more difficult if you're actually buying services. So if you're buying people, then then we're getting to a point where it's it's very, very difficult. Almost everyone is making very suboptimal decisions when they're buying people. Let's say you're let's say a doctor or a marketing consultant for your company or whatever it is. It's often just like somebody referred you in. You don't even know how to interview this person, right? Like who knows how to interview a doctor or a lawyer or a plumber or something? You you have no idea. So you just kind of like you make a random decision. Um, and you would never even like even for like the lowest level person in your company, you would never make a decision like that. But for some something as important as your entire health or like the health of your your house, you're making completely random random decisions. And this is where like having some extra data could be really, really helpful to people. Let, let, let's brainstorm this this idea. What what um like if we were, you know, dedicated to solving this problem, how, how might you approach it in terms of like what do you think is the is the wedge to get that data or what's exciting there? I, I don't know how to get the data. I think getting the data is really, really, really hard. Um, but if you can have some sort of graph of like all the services that everyone you know uses, that would be really valuable. Um, and so you can imagine if you're a service provider, you would have incentive to get everyone to rate you or something like that on, on it because you want to get more customers. Let's say you're a babysitter or a lawyer or a doctor or a physical trainer or a roofer or a travel agent or a wedding planner. You, you go down the list of things. Or again, like if you're working with companies, you're a marketing consultant or you're a CPA or you know all these other things that you, you could potentially help out on. Um, and I think that kind of thing that like these things are relatively high transaction Usually, you know, these vendors will have um, dozens of clients at any given time. Sometimes they'll have hundreds of clients at any given time. And so it makes sense to have some sort of market like this. I think it'd be much more difficult to do if it's like a job that you have for three years or something and you're trying to do some sort of referral there. Yeah. Is Yelp the closest thing that, you know, some people put their services up in Yelp, right? I don't know. I mean, yeah. they might. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I love Yelp for like restaurants and stuff like yeah. that. And yeah, I think it could be helpful for a plumber, but, but again, it's, and even, but both for restaurants and a plumber, just because they have, you, you have an understanding that like some of these things can be gamed very, very easy. Yeah. Whereas if I see like Eric Torenberg has suggested that I go to this plumber, he thinks this plumber is good. I can, um, you know, I, I can more trust it. And if I'm, if, if I'm still not sure, because that recommendation might've been from four years ago, you may hate that plumber. Now right. I could like, just give Thank I could you. text you super quick and be like, Hey, do you, what do you think of this plumber? You recommended them. Yeah. You still think this is worth me going to, right? So a quick text could really go a long way. Yeah. I guess Thumbtack was the other service that, that you sort of uh, aggregate services, um, or the other product that aggregates services, but it's not as social, I imagine. Yeah. Like I, you don't see. Yeah. And th Thumbtack, it's like you want someone to go, you know, hang a TV at your house and they'll be there the next day. It's a great company. Yeah. I love Thumbtack. I'm an investor in Thumbtack and, and uh, I love, I love what they do. Um, and, um, and, and for some of those things, like who hangs a TV in your, I don't know, probably doesn't really matter that much. Yeah. And it's also like a one and done kind of transaction that happens. Like, um, I, I'm, I'm, you don't, even if you use Thumbtack, you don't even really know the person who came. You don't even remember their name. If you have an ongoing relationship, like you have an ongoing relationship with a plumber or you have an ongoing relationship with um, a lawyer or a doctor or a dentist or, or babysitter or something like that, physical trainer, then it kind of makes more sense to um, to have that kind of recommendation that goes there.
Yeah. Do you think Glassdoor is an interesting business or how, how do you think about that business? I think it's an amazing business. Yeah. All, all the business that Rich Barton has started um, have been amazing, right? I, oh, yeah. I think he's just yeah. like an incredible entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, and Glassdoor is 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 a great business, and there are a lot of opportunities to review. The problem, of course, with all these things nowadays is everyone believes all the reviews are gamed. Yeah. Um, and no one really believes anything anymore about a review. So when you see something, um, uh, you know, it's like, do you really care about the stars of your Uber driver anymore? Or do you really care about like, you know, the, the Yelp recommendation? It, it's very, it's very, very hard to understand these types of things. And even the negative ones you often discount. Oh, that's just uh, somebody who had a, who's just a, someone who always complains about things. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think if you could know what people you, you know, do, or even maybe not even you might not even know them. You know, maybe they don't even know Eric, yeah, but they know probably. of Eric. Yeah. Um, and they're like, oh, okay, well, I kind of trust it more now that Eric says it's good. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's like we still don't know, you know, what products to use, what organizations to join, or what people to work with. And th there are some sites for the at least the, the former, the first two that do like stranger um, you know, recommendations, but we don't trust them. And so if there were, you know, a website that did highly social recommendations, you know, contextualize with people you, you trust, um, I'm sure, I'm sure people have tried that. They've just been unable to build the graph. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, and I don't know really people have even tried. Yeah. I mean, it, it's probably not that hard to get dentists to, to on your system. And that way, if you want to go find a dentist, you could go learn really, really quickly, but I don't know anyone's ever tried. And you, you may have to go like site, you know, uh, profession by profession, like let's do it with the dentist first and know it's the place that then we'll do it with the doctors then we'll do it with the physical therapist. And then, you know, then you kind of slowly go to, you know, everybody else in your life. Yeah. It is funny. It's like, you know, on Twitter and on Facebook, I often see like, you know, who are the best venture capitalists investing in, you know, FinTech or I'm going to New York, who should I meet? Or on Facebook, it's more like, you know, who should I use for a nanny or what, you know, more, and if there was a way to like scrape all those questions and maybe bootstrap a new network in a way that like stored, cause you know, 50 people will respond, but that, that data isn't stored and then reusable yeah. for other people. Yeah. Even when you're, if you're making a trip to Italy right now, you might put on Facebook exactly. or Twitter, Hey, where should I go? What should I do? And you'll have all these great recommendations. And then like, and then like, even, even you yourself, you forget where that link is like a year later, like it kind of just disappears in the ether. Yeah. I wonder if the cosine name or cosine brand could be like, Hey, I cosign, you know, this person, this organization, this product even. Um, but it would probably better be start, start as a focused thing, lest it become too, too wide. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's hard. And by the way, it's hard even for people to remember when they do something once it's hard for them to remember. If you, if you went to Italy three years ago and you went to this great restaurant, you may have, you may have some sort of memory that you went to a great restaurant but you you probably don't even remember the name of the restaurant. You probably don't remember quite where it is. You may have mistaken that restaurant for the other restaurant you went to that isn't so good. And so yeah. these things are actually very hard to capture. Yeah, fascinating. Let's zoom out and then come back to some of the people ideas. Um, LinkedIn, talk about why LinkedIn has been su surprisingly so hard to disrupt and yet also so, um, you know, uh, for many people disappointing as, as a product. Like what, what is your um, kind of assessment of, of LinkedIn the past, you know, decade plus. And Who, who's tried to disrupt it? Well, do you think? <laughs> um, that's a good question. 
I mean, there's, you know, we've seen hundreds or thousands of people claim that they're LinkedIn killers and they've tried to, you know, maybe do, disrupt elements of it, whether the org, like the org trying to do org charts, uh, you know, Searchlight is trying to do references. Um, there have been companies trying to do endorsements. Um, there, you know, there are companies that have just been trying to do LinkedIn for X, like for designers yeah. or for, you know, uh, engineers or something more um, fragmented. Um yeah, how would you categorize like Well, I think there's many different uses of LinkedIn and then I think I think you can take them one by one. So the first is being able to um, you know, uh, reach out to people. Yes. This is I think the worst use of LinkedIn. I don't think okay. it works. Um, I know that they make tons of money by it, but I don't think the in-mails are effective at all. Um, and so and I think it's like I think Zoom info is just a way better business than LinkedIn for that. You can get the contact information and then you can email them or call them yourself. Or if you want to, you can still go to LinkedIn and reach out to them on LinkedIn. So I think in that case, like it's not the best business. There's the recruiting side of LinkedIn where you like put up a job announcement. In that case, they're really just not any different from any other recruiting site that's out there. None of them are particularly that good um, um, that, 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 that's around. I think the, the, the killer use case for LinkedIn is research about people. Um, I don't know about you, but every single time I meet with somebody before I meet with them, I go to their LinkedIn profile and learn about them. What college did they go to? Where, where, what have they been up to in their career? What's going on with them? That is my primary source of information and it's curated by that person. So I get what they are willing to tell me about them, um, but it's usually really good. And then we can start a conversation. Oh, I saw you went to Clemson. Oh, that's, I went to the Clemson game. You know, we can have a conversation. You know, it's kind of fun um, to, to have that thing. Um, but the research is, is limited and not everybody, uh, not all types of people have LinkedIn profiles. Uh, and so you could see a, somebody going after the research side. And that is the side of LinkedIn that I don't think anyone's actually tried to do. Yeah. So l let's brainstorm. Like, if you're going to go after the research side, you would need to have data that LinkedIn doesn't have. Um, and so to me, things that come to mind are like, um, you know, who are the people that know me best or that I talk to the most or um, like better information on strength of connection um, or maybe more information about like my personal goals um, or like who follows me on Twitter that you also, you know, that is a really influential person. And this goes to the clout <laughs> idea a little bit. Um, what what comes to mind for you in terms of the research side of like what's a 10x better product than what LinkedIn? Well, it depends on what you want to research on. One thing you could potentially do is start with very high end research. Uh, so research about very important people that you want to uh, learn about before you go meet with them because it's a high value meeting. So maybe you're meeting with an LP or something for your fund. And, or maybe it's a, a, a very important transaction. It's a venture capitalist or the venture capitalist is meeting with a core entrepreneur. It's a, it's an important sales meeting and a private wealth kind of person who's meeting with someone, whatever. And you want to learn about that person. Then you might want a, a more detailed dossier um, of that person. And today, like so maybe you or somebody in your organization is spending all this time on Google and reading all these articles and it's kind of inefficient. Uh, to go find information about them. And maybe they, they don't even have a LinkedIn profile in some certain cases. So I, I think that's not a bad place to start. There was a company that was started um, quite a while ago called WealthX. And they were building these, uh, they were kind of started by a, a bunch of people, including some of the people that wrote the profiles for Forbes 400 
um, and they would create all these profiles and they would kind of sell them to, let's say, Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. And they would have like, oh, this great detailed profile of Eric Torenberg. And now I know his birthday and maybe I even know his parents' names. And I would know he likes basketball and he likes to rap. And, you know, I'd have some other kind of information about him through maybe other things. It's, it's not necessarily the most scalable thing, but for uh, high-end people, people that have, um, you know, essentially high CACs to get them, um, then having extra detailed dossiers on them could be really valuable. Yeah, it's interesting. There was this company, Everpedia, that tried to do like Wikipedia, but for everybody. Uh-huh. I don't have a Wikipedia page. Most people in tech don't have a Wikipedia page. I, I know you do because I was uh, looking researching it in, in advance. Um, I, and, and by the way, like I don't think anything is even correct on yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So that'd be pretty valuable. You know, another use case is referencing, and I'll go to someone's LinkedIn, but I won't really know who to ask. Like we have. X people in common, but then I'll ask the people in common. They don't know them. Yep. And it's it's a miserable experience. If there was a page that aggregated like who this person has worked for or or just had better, like uh, I, I think email is slept on as a data sort. Like if they, you know, um, integrated their email, I would know like who, who they talk to the most that I also know, this kind of thing. I mean, though in some cases, like often when I am doing references on people, um, they're complicit in me doing references on them. It's not like I'm doing references on them in secret, right? I'm, I'm trying to hire them or I'm trying to invest in them or something like that. Or maybe even we're doing references on each other because we're doing a deal together. And then in that case, you can you could go to LinkedIn. You can say, okay, hey, look, we have these 120 people overlap. Here's, here they are. Which of those 120 people do you think that will know you the best? Exactly. And I'll go reach out and they can do the same for you. And so it really depends on, um, you know, on the reference situation that you have on them. Yeah, yeah that, that makes a lot of sense. One of the businesses that you help, helped uh, put together was uh, Windfall. You know, that's around understanding people's net, net worths, if I understand correctly. Net worth, of course, is is one of the you know things that people search the most often in secret <laughs> about someone. What, what do you think is most interesting about that? Bit? Like, what I wonder is, should net worth be a part of that uh, you know site, or is that just not something people want on their site? Well, yeah, I mean, I think for, first of all, yeah, Windfall is a religion company, so it's trying to predict the net worth of somebody. Um, and in some ways you would think that's a truth company, but predicting is very, very difficult or net, net worth. And their goal is to be completely correct. Their goal is to be in the right magnitude. So if your net worth is a million dollars, they don't want to say it's 10. They don't want to say it's a hundred thousand, but if they say it's two, it's probably directionally fine. Um, and it gives, it, 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 it will give everyone a good sense of how they should interact with you. And in their case, a lot of the people that buy their data are, um, nonprofits that are trying to figure out how much they should ask you for. Um, or there are different companies that are trying to decide like how value of a customer you are. Maybe it's a hotel that you stayed in one time and they want to understand how much they should market to you or what type of offers they should give you, et cetera, to get you as a, or what type of service level maybe they should give you to get you as a better, a better customer. Yeah, that, that makes sense. We were going back and forth on the idea of, uh, of, of reference checks as a service or more broadly, just, you know, reputation on the internet, right? Um, you know, we give references for people like that are very valuable, but that information is not on the internet. I tend to believe that if information is really valuable at some point, it will make its way to the, the internet. W- what are your thoughts on kind of reputation on the internet and w- what potential business idea excites you there? Well, I think reputation is hard because just because you have one type of reputation in one um, category does not mean you have a reputation in other L- live ramp, the, 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 
company I started, like originally we started out as a company called Live Rep, and the whole idea was to do reputation on people. And it turned out to be a lot more difficult than we thought because just because you have a reputation as a great accountant, you may have a reputation as a bad spouse. Um, and they may have no relationship with one another. You would think that they do, but they may have absolutely no relationship with one another. And so the, it could be very, very, very micro. And the types of things, or you have a great reputation with people of this type of personality, but not as good of person with, with reputation with maybe a slightly different type of personality, right? And so these are, I think, a very, very, very difficult uh, thing because everyone has all these biases, and these biases are pretty pronounced today. Um, and so, in certain cases, if like somebody's a great plumber, like maybe the bias is is, is pretty limited. Um, but they seep in quite fast. Uh, and um, today, like if, if, you know, if, if I'm a Bayesian and you're not a Bayesian, like I think you're going to go to hell or something. Um, <laughs> it, it, so you just have all these weird religions which prop up everywhere. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, so what do you think is the, is the, is the opportunity or in terms of like what, what excited you about the Tegas for People idea? Well, I, th I think in, in Tegas for People to me is interesting the more high volume it is. So again, if, it's, if someone you're only going to work, if you're going to work with for the next f 10 years, if you're deciding, okay, this person's going to be my co-founder of my company or something, I think it's going to be, I, I think you just have to do all the work um, to make it happen. And it's like, it's like, it's, I don't know, I, I like, or, you know, if you decide to marry somebody like for real or like real marriage or something, like you have to do the work, you have to date them for a while, you have to kind of figure it out. Maybe you got to go meet their friends, you have to meet their family, right? Before you propose to them. Um, and, uh, and I, I just think there's very little way around that. And yeah, maybe if you knew everyone who they emailed or something before, it might be like slightly faster to get there. Um, but, but I think it would be more difficult to go do, but if you're again, trying to get a doctor, especially for something you really don't have an idea of how to even interview for, uh, if I could see all of my friends and what doctors they use and have some sort of sense of it, and maybe even have some sort of sense of pricing and a few other types of things, maybe I'm price conscious, maybe I'm price agnostic, whatever, um, then I could, you know, much more quickly, at least narrow down the three doctors that I think I should most talk to, to see if they're good fits. Yeah. It, it does kind of blow my mind that we don't have like, you know, if you want to see a movie, for example, and you're like, or, or listen to a song, you're like, Hey, I like this song. You know, uh, send me a song like it or latest movie, send me a movie like it. Like you'll get pretty good recommendations, but if you're, by the like, way, I don't, hey, I don't think that's true. Oh really? The yeah, aren't very good. <laughs> I mean, movie recommend. Have you gotten a good movie recommendation recently? I mean, most of the TV shows and movies you probably watch are probably through just random people telling you about them. Yes. Okay. That's that's fair. That's fair enough. But and Netflix still, is it, terrible at it. Like, yeah. I don't. I don't know. It, it might be a really hard problem, or it might be just a problem they don't need to solve because they right. they don't they just serve you up whatever and you're fine with it. Yeah. Isn't so? It, it seems what you're excited about is like social recommendations for kind of like for, for everything um, or like highly trusted social recommendations. Has, has anyone tried this in the past decade that you've seen that you're like, wow, this, this could be interesting. I, I think it's definitely doable. I haven't seen, I've seen a few people try to do it and then they've probably pivoted to other things. Um, but it seems like something is doable. I think it, it works best when the recommend where you can recommend something that isn't monogamous. Right. Um, again, like if I'm going to recommend, I'm not recommending my spouse to somebody else, right? <laughs> like, like there's no yeah. way I'm going to do that. And I'm not going to recommend my best engineer to right. somebody else either. Right. Like I don't want, you know, I want, I want to lose those types of things. Whereas like, 
you know, my doctor, like yeah. that's fine. My lawyer, you know, whatever. Or if it's like a product that you buy or a hotel that you can go to or whatever, like I'm happy. Those are things you're really happy to, to recommend to other people. In fact, you want to recommend because you want to enrich their life. Yeah. And movies, you know, books can be in a similar way. You could imagine that Facebook or Instagram or Twitter would have built this functionality on, on top of them. Is is it just too? Just, is it just not worth their time? Or like, I I don't know. I've had a few conversations back in the day with folks at like Facebook about this, and they have said like this always comes up. Yeah, it is something they've talked about a gazillion times. But for whatever reason, they um, and you know maybe it makes sense. Like for them, maybe maybe it actually like decrease their advertising revenue or something, right? Um, and so it like it doesn't actually fit necessarily in their business model. You might need someone whose like sole goal it is to get you to get better products and services. It is interesting. One thing I'm questioning is like, let's say I build this, let's say it's called Cosign for now, and it's where people to recommend, um, you know, people that they trust. And let's say it's service providers or, you know, like who's the best person in, uh, you know, or climate engineer, or, you know, climate investor or whatever. Should I combine the site with things as well? Or like, should it be people and products and places or should it just be people? And that's where it keeps its focus. I mean, it really depends on how you're getting the information. So yeah, if you're mining their email, then maybe you maybe getting the products, you might as well get at the same time. Right. Um, but if you're actually going to all the dentists and trying to get them and you're trying to go the other way, or you're trying to just build integrations with the dental software and their CRM, um, then, then I think you, you probably don't want to do that. Yeah. I suspect in the beginning, it would be like finding a way to scrape all the, you know, um, asks, like I've seen, you know, hundreds of these on Twitter and just like manually or, you know, putting them onto this new site and then everyone gets a profile based on, you know, if they've recommended or been recommended. And it's just like, here's the site to find a person for anybody. Um, and then maybe it grows from there or is that too slow manual or. I'm not sure. I think it might be better if it was a little bit more focused on a particular type of service, e even if there are a few services that are out there and then, and then, you know, built in some other type of layer or something like getting a doctor is actually incredibly difficult to, to, to do. Most people have a, I mean, some people just, you know, use Kaiser or something and they kind of get a doctor that's assigned to them. But if you're actually going shopping for that, or you're shopping for a physical therapist or something like you have no idea. Um, you don't even know how to interview for that. And, um, and so having some sort of and then, you know, having some sort of, and there might be other metadata you bring in, like, you know, how many, um, you know, uh, malpractice suits have been against this doctor. You know, so th there could be other data that you could bring in to help people shop in a, an effective way. Yes. Scott Belsky tried something like this with prefer. I don't know what ended up happening to it. I, I should check in with him or have him on the show. You should definitely have him on the show because he's a super smart guy. Yeah. If you were. CEO of LinkedIn, let's say like from 2014 on, what would you have done different with the business? Well, the first thing, I mean, LinkedIn is just a terrible site. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm not sure why it's so bad, um, but it takes like 20 seconds to do something on there. Um, yeah. And I don't know what, like these are, they have super smart engineers. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it is a sol very solvable problem, um, but they have chosen not to do that. And maybe they've chosen for good reason. Maybe they just want people to have a bad experience because they figured out from like, a, you know, some sort of other thing. But as a user, it's incredibly frustrating um, to actually use. Now, I, I use, I still use it every single day. So maybe it doesn't matter. 
uh, maybe they're like, okay, it's not worth even the small investment to make this site faster. But I think in the end, you do end up, if, if you don't treat people with respect, if you don't treat your users with respect, eventually they will want to go somewhere else. And I think at this point, so many, well, I, I'm such a huge LinkedIn's fan. So many people have had this kind of experience where they, 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 they don't treat you well. And that's true with Salesforce. That's true with a lot of these other services that are out there. A lot of Google apps, um, uh, services are like that as well, where they are not trying to, they're trying, they're not, they're not respecting your time. Um, and they, they should be trying to get you to do what you need to do as fast as possible. Um, this is not a you're not like you're going to the spa and you want to spend like an entire day there. Um, this is like when I go to a haircut, I want a haircut in like 10 minutes and I want to get out of there. You have a, it's a different type of user that is trying to get out of it and they're trying to maximize the value with the time that they spend. Totally. Yeah. That, that's a great answer. Go, going back to my, uh, sort of movie recommendation point where I was going with that is it feels like there's even worse for like people recommendation. Like if I want to say, Hey, I want a co-founder like my last co-founder, or I want to build this, like I'm looking for this kind of co-founder or this kind of hire or this kind of friend or this kind of girlfriend. <laughs> like it just feels like uh people search is such a unexplored space. Well, I mean, I do think that's just people are so much more complex. And I mean, and if you just like, let's just think of a spouse, right? Like, the the spouse for you who who you will be incredibly happy with millions and millions of other people would not be happy with right um and and, uh, and so it just like it just it's so hard to actually run the run the thing and even with your best friend who you love and you love spending time with like his spouse and your spouse still could end up being like completely very different types of people uh so i i think these things are very very, very difficult to, um, um, to, to, to do. And that was the probably same true with the co-founders. And that's probably true with a lot of different things, even, even for hires for people in your company. Um, some, I I've seen a players who thrived in one company and they moved to another company and they were, you know, B minus players because they just weren't able to do well in that particular culture. Right. But even like if I wanted a database of 500 people who would potentially be good co-founders for me or not even good, like interested in even having that conversation, um, you know, had the relevant skill sets, you know, somewhat relevant interests. Um, it feels like a like intent is kind of, and same thing on the dating thing. It's like, if I want like 500 people in my city who, uh, meet a certain bar of something and are, you know, single, like it feels you can go on an app and swipe manually, but like these, these things kind of, it just feels like there's got to be something better. <laughs> I don't know. That doesn't like, I mean, uh, for, I, I, I met my spouse before the real advent of, of mobile dating and stuff like that. But I imagine it's like way more efficient now right. um, than <laughs> it was. And it probably works fine. I mean, you know, most people end up finding someone who's good. The, the rate of divorce has been plummeting in the United States. People are generally very happy with their marriages. Um, obviously plenty of exceptions, but um and, uh, and so, uh, I, I, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's the most important decision you're going to make in your life. There's only so efficient you're making. <laughs> and if you think of a co-founder, it's similar. It's like a hugely yeah. important decision. These are hard to, um, to make efficient. I, I want, I, I think it's like much easier. Let's make the other ones, uh, more efficient. And those ones are, are, are somewhat efficient. Like people just pick a doctor randomly today, but they, they shouldn't. 
they end up with someone who's very, very suboptimal for them. And they should try to, you know, with, with a little bit more infrastructure, they could potentially pick something that's much, much better for them. Yeah. I wonder if ChatGPT will make these searching problems a bit um, easier. I think it could for sure. Yeah. Let's go through a couple other ideas you, you had before we go. One is um, we're both involved in a business Crossbeam. Um, why, why do you like Crossbeam so much? And, and why do you like businesses like it? Like say more about that. Crossbeam is an amazing business. And for, for those people who don't know, it, it basically allows different companies to often their Salesforce or CRM data, and then, then they could see common customers or common potential customers. And so there's this idea of like second party data sharing. And I think we could do that across many, many, many different types of things. They focused on this kind of like B2B selling, mostly a B2B software kind of selling vertical. And I think it works really well. We at Safegraph use them all the time. Um, but I think you could have cross beams for lots of different types of industries with second party data. And this idea of second party data is going to become more and more important over time. What, what are some examples that come to mind? I'm curious if you think like startup VC fundraising would be an example or, or not as much. Uh, I think it could. Yeah. So, um, so I, I think understanding or, or like LPs would be a really interesting thing, right? So who are my LPs? Who's your LPs? Under, you, you know, we can get the LPs today because you can, you can, there are different things that say who the LPs are for certain funds. Um, but like who the LPs that you've talked to and, and what's the overlap or who we currently talk to, could we introduce, uh, you know, each other to those types of things. People invest in this type of, you know, VC probably are very interested in learning about, you know, other ones that are kind of like it. So it could be the good for them. So there's probably lots of things that you could do uh, where you're connecting uh, these um, the, the, these uh, second party data. And it's true for consumer data too. So if like Starbucks and McDonald's want to build some sort of partnership, um, they don't want to necessarily send the whole uh, database to one another. And that would also have a lot of privacy implications, but if they can get like customer overlap um, and, and they could say, oh, at least for our high value customers, what's the overlap? And, you know, it's, then they can have a, they, at least they can get a sense of like, should we even do the BD deal together? Right. And this also um, may be a segue to your, the, the co-op idea, the DSO co-op you, you like so much. You want to say more about that? Yeah. So I, I love ideas where you can like tap into all this interesting data. And I think one data that a lot of people have, a lot of small businesses have is all these, all this data that sits into their general, in their general ledger, which could be QuickBooks or zero or whatever they're using. Um, and if we could somehow take that data and aggregate it across uh, thousands or millions of businesses, we could learn a lot. And you know, one simple thing would be just understanding like how long does it take for the average company to pay people? Um, and if you're a small business and you have a choice of working with Ford or GM and Ford pays people within 30 days and GM pays people within 90, all things being equal, you're going to go with Ford, right? Um, and so getting that data, I think, could start to help the little guy um, and you could be this data engine for the little guy. Um, another thing could be like, there could be lots of things too, like how litigious is this thing? You know, there could be lots of different ways of scoring once we can get data across many, many different businesses. Yeah. Earlier we were talking about data businesses that have exhaust and there's a few of them. One business that has data as an exhaust that's valuable is Tegas, right? Um, yep. they, they do these calls and then they, um, and you could imagine if, if you were able to create a marketplace of referencers and they recorded the references, you know, maybe you could build kind of like this broader you know, uh, ultimate database of, of people's reputation. I think that could be interesting. You know, the, there's one thing if Tigas, the, the reviewer is, um, anonymous, 
Um, and so you don't know who the reviewer is. If someone's like talking about the SafeGraph product or something like that, um, first of all, they're talking about the SafeGraph product. So it's a little bit more technical um, and they're anonymous. If someone's talking about a person, you may want to have some sort of sense of like why, you know, what relationship they have. And it might be hard for them to remain anonymous if their like transcript is up there. Um, and then, and then of course, you know, the, with, with, when you're talking about people, you can, you could really hurt their feelings. And so you want to be able to do it in a, in the right way. So, so I think it, w- it would work really well in a fact-based thing, right? Like well, we know the fact, okay, you graduated from Michigan on this date. Okay. That's a fact or something. And then we can go verify that fact. But like, you know, um, how nice of a guy is Eric from one to five? I mean, maybe that's fine if we have enough data points. Uh, but I think it would be more challenging to figure out. Yeah, totally. As, as objective as uh, as possible, um, and then you'd have to just figure out the right right questions. Let, let's talk about the uh, the NDA network. What, why are you excited about that? Well, I I think just the idea of signing NDAs makes no sense. Yep. <laughs> and every time I I literally sign three NDAs today, and we're talking <laughs> at three p.m. my time, um, and so just like constantly signing NDAs to have a conversation. And, um, so I would love a NDA network where, and then you, you often have to get the lawyer involved because you don't know, like someone might try to slip into the NDA that's out there. Right. So ideally there's some network where every company can sign the base and there might be a few different flavors of NDA. And then all you do is you go on and you say, um, okay, for this company, I'm, I'm now, I'm now in NDA with them. And then they opt in together. So something like that. And I think there's a whole bunch of different things in like the legal world and other world that are just like these high transaction costs for our, um, for companies that really don't add any value at all. Um, and I think it's important that we reduce that friction quite a bit so that people can be much more likely to be spending their time innovating. Yeah. And maybe lastly, on the request for startups is the um, service businesses that scale. Why don't you talk uh, more about that? Well, there was this trope a while ago and still true that, you know, there's a lot of these great SaaS companies and they're essentially services businesses that are masquerading uh, uh, um, uh, software businesses, you know, and, and that that's a problem and their margins are bad, et cetera. I think the other, the flip side is actually a really good business. Um, which is a software business masquerading as a services business. Because services businesses in some ways are much easier to sell to people than software. People understand what I'm buying. I'm buying, oh, I'm buying Eric Torenberg's marketing, podcast marketing services. Like I'm definitely buying that. Like that sounds great. I want to buy that. I want to learn from how to how to market my podcast better. Um, and um, now the problem is like it's it's you know hard to scale services businesses. So if you can somehow start to put more and more software in the back end, doesn't mean you have to be a hundred percent. You know you can start with ten percent, then twenty percent, then thirty percent, forty percent over time, um, and you can softwareize services. I think these businesses can be really, really, really interesting. And th- it's the opposite of the businesses that I like, um, but in some ways the opposites kind of attract. Whereas like. In services, very few services business will ever get more than 1% market share, let alone 50% market share. Even the biggest law firms have very, very small market share that are out there. Um, and But because of that, just the competition of how you how how fast they move, how technology stacked they are is very, very, very low and, and potentially very easy to compete with them. 
Yeah, fascinating. So, so a service business that allows you to, you know, build cash flow, but also like build a data set as well. Or? Yeah, the the first most important thing in, in any type of business is that you want the person making the product to be different than the person selling the product. And in most services business, they're completely interlinked, and that's why they can't grow very fast. Because oh, I sold a few, and now I'm stuck. I can't go sell anymore because I'm actually doing the services. It, once you can delink those two, then you actually can grow them very, very, very quickly. Yeah. That's fascinating. And, and how, how do you delink them by, I guess, built, turning them into a product? Yeah. You, you productize it as much as possible. So in closing, have you thought about formalizing your, your incubation? You have plenty of ideas that you want talented people to go do, or do you not like incubators? You prefer the ad hoc? How do you think about it? Well, I love incubators. I think the most important thing about an incubator is that, that the incubator has to be treated as the main company and not the companies that one is starting. Uh, and most incubators die because they just have no successes, right? Yeah. But the second most reason that incubators die is that they have one giant success, yes. like an Uber or an Affirm, and then they just kind of move over to that, right? If you think of Atomic, which is really one of the few incubators that is working, this, Jack Abraham, he, he, he's one of my heroes. He's really figured it out. Now, if you're a solo person and, and you really want to be kind of an incubator, you also have certain advantages that maybe a formal incubator that, that has to take like LP money doesn't have, um, especially if you're planning on giving that money to charity. I, if, I, I'm planning on giving all the additional money I earn from businesses to charity. If you have that mindset, you, you can start to structure your ownerships through trusts where the money can come in tax-free, and then you essentially need a lot less equity. The problem with, 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 uh, with, with incubators is a lot of these incubators take like 50% of the equity, uh, the equity up front, uh, and that leaves li very little room to bring in really, really talented people. If you can take a, a lot smaller piece of the pie because you have a tax advantage structure, then you can attract better people to, to, uh, to help you on that journey. Fascinating. That's a great place to wrap. Uh, if you're pursuing any one of these ideas, uh, you know, and, and are, you know, have a compelling way to build it, you'd be very lucky to have Oren as a potential, uh, you know, partner. Yeah, please reach out to me at Oren on Twitter. I would be very interested in talking to you about any of these ideas. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Oren. Thanks, Eric. Turpentine is a network of podcasts, newsletters, and more covering tech, business, and culture, all from the perspective of industry insiders and experts. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from AI with Cognitive Revolution to Econ 102 with Noah Smith. Our other shows drive the conversation in tech, with the most interesting thinkers, founders, and investors, like Moment of Zen and my show, Upstream. We're looking for industry-leading hosts and shows, along with sponsors. If you think that might be you or your company, email me at eric at turpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co.